Thank you for listening to another episode of the Freewheeling Podcast. I'm your host, Abby Mickey. So two weeks ago when Lauren and I did the first of our two series Q&A episodes, we got a question about eating disorders and the pressure to be lean in the sport. After that podcast came out, Molly Weaver dropped her third in a series of articles about the pressures of professional women's cycling, the problems in the sport, and her personal experience in the sport. Her article last week was about eating disorders and the pressure from teams to lose weight. After her article came out, I wanted to dive a little bit deeper into Molly's piece and also into the topic of eating disorders in general. So I talked to Molly first about her article and writing that and how it, how it was to get all of those emotions out on paper. And then I talked to a professional sports psychologist, Kristen Keim, who works with a lot of professional female cyclists and male cyclists, and hears a lot about the pressures in the sport, as well as eating disorders and disordered eating, which are not the same things. So in this episode, we do a little bit of a deep dive into eating disorders. We can barely scratch the surface of this topic because it goes so much deeper than just the sport and the fact that power to weight ratio is a huge factor in this sport. For women, it also has a lot to do with the society that we grew up in and the society we live in and the body image that is paraded around as what we should aspire to look like. So there's a lot that we couldn't get into, but I think this is a really good starting point for the topic in general. And I really, really enjoyed talking to Molly again. Always love talking to Molly and also to Kristen because she deals with so much with all of her athletes that she really knows a lot and it was able to put a couple things into perspective. So thank you so much for listening to the Freeling podcast and let's listen to what Molly has to say. So Molly, how's it going? I'm good, thanks. I'm good. And you? You know, hanging in there. Surviving. <laughs> Surviving. <laughs> About the best we can all do at this point yeah. in time. So before we dive into the main topic of this podcast, which is eating disorders in in women's cycling, but it's it's in cycling. It, it, in cycling, not just professional cycling, it's in amateur cycling, it's in collegiate cycling. Uh, I pray to whatever I pray to that it is not in junior cycling because that is a whole nother thing that I just don't even want to touch um anyway so before we get into that I wanted to ask about the dirty weaver because it's been a couple weeks since you did your your dirty weaver but that was you rode 13 1300 laps of your parents garden yeah (laughs) um uh, to raise money for the women's um, health aid? Um, yes, yeah, it's, it's like a domestic abuse charity. Okay. Um, women's aid, yeah. Cool. And and you raised like a ton more than you had originally set the, the goal for, oh, which yeah, was like awesome. Oh, like a ridiculous amount. <laughs> yeah. Um, but how, how was it? How Like now that you're a few weeks out and your legs have recovered a little bit, <laughs> looking back on it, what are your thoughts? Oh, that it was a really stupid idea. <laughs> <laughs> is my main thought. Um, no, actually, like 
with all these things once it's over you're like oh that was amazing but actually it was it was pretty horrible (laughs) (laughs) did you ever think about doing it on the road or did you do it in your parents garden as like solidarity to everybody who was locked inside in Spain and Italy and France yeah the the kind of well when we first came up with the idea we weren't even in lockdown but we knew we would go into it but it was more like the event was supposed to be off-road we were like oh let's make it off-road and then we thought well everyone's doing stuff like on turbo trainers and like indoor trainers for charity and we're kind of like oh it's kind of done now and then people started running like marathons in their gardens and stuff so we were like oh let's what can we do on a bike that's like similar to running a marathon in your garden that kind of vibe because it's got to be for people to sponsor you it's got to be kind of horrible like you can't just be like i'm gonna go and do a gravel ride everyone's like okay cool have fun <laughs> <laughs> so we're like this sounds really horrible so we decided on the garden but we also thought stupidly it was like gonna be like a kilometer a lap i don't know why we thought that because it's like a small garden um, and then when we measured it, it was a hundred meters and we were like, Oh, <laughs> <laughs> well, <bad>. yeah, <laughs> I'd already committed at that point. <laughs> yeah. And, um, has your mom's garden recovered? Because unfortunately <laughs> on the day of the event, if anybody was watching it, um, via your Instagram, it was, it was very muddy. <laughs> so oh, it was awful. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, so how's your mom feeling about about her garden? Um, I've not seen her or the garden really since. Um, so you just <laughs> destroyed like... <laughs> her garden and then left? I just pieced out, yeah. Um, I think she agreed to it under the conditions that it was meant to be really sunny. So we'd kind of thought like, oh yeah, the grass will get like a bit mucky maybe, but it'll be all right. Um, and then only like in the week before as we were checking the weather, it was getting like worse and worse just on that one day. And then by the time we got there, it was so bad. It just rained all night and then all day. Um, and it's pretty destroyed, but she's kind of like, she's looking on the bright side. She's like, oh, I can turn this into a path. And I'm like, well, yeah, the grass is gone. So you might as well. Like she's, just, <laughs> she's kind of just like re-landscaping around it. But I just, the whole way through, I was like, it's for charity and you can't be angry if it's for charity. So we kind of like sedated her. <laughs> well, it was awesome. I, I give you many, many props for coming up with the idea and then executing it so um, amazingly. And, <laughs> and I hope that you don't ever have to do that again. Oh, I'm never doing it again. <laughs> That's what I told myself the entire way through. It was like, this is once ever. <laughs> yep. I mean, people are doing crazy stuff right now. There's like somebody who rode Zwift for like 24 hours straight. Mm-mm. Oh. No. I would rather li- I would rather li- ride thirteen hundred laps of your mom's garden than do that. Oh yeah, I mean yeah, I kind of want to do something different, but also yeah, I don't even have a trainer, and I was not going to get on one for this. <laughs> so yeah, I'd rather be outside, even because in the terrestrial. Being retired has some perks, like not having to oh, ride yeah. a trainer. Yeah, <laughs> my trainer got flooded in our house flood, and I was just like quite relieved. <laughs> Never bought another one. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. <laughs> All right, so on another um, less hilarious note, mm-hmm. um, we are here to discuss your latest piece in your series about highlighting some of the issues in women's cycling. And it's um, it happened at a really 
interesting time that you wrote this piece because Lauren and I just did a Q&A episode and one of the questions was about the pressure to lose weight inside the Peloton and if it was still a thing and um, how riders dealt with it. So it's it was kind of, I hadn't, I didn't know how to answer that question when we were doing the Q&A and mm-hmm. then the next week you came out with this. So oh. So I figured we'd do like a little bit of a deep dive into your, your piece and, um, the, the writing of it and your motivation for including this in your series. And then after I talk to you, I have Kristen Keim, who's a professional and can give me her professional opinion on all of this. So I kind of want to start with what motivated you to include this in your series about women cycling. Hmm. That's a good question. Um, this was not kind of like a spur of the moment decision, this one. Um, I kind of originally came up with the idea of just doing one, the original one. Um, and then kind of as that idea developed and people started asking for like different questions and I started asking about like a broader range of topics, I kind of decided I'm either going to do this and go all in or I'm not going to do it. Um, so I kind of decided, okay, what are the things that in my career and in the careers I witnessed around me and other people who I was on teams with and friends, what were like the main things that stood out as, as like massively prevalent issues, like you say, in all types of cycling, but this was specifically my experience. So it was in women's cycling. Um, and this one was just, it just, it's through the entire of the sport, but I experienced it obviously personally. And then in riders around me and in friends, and it was so prolific and yet no one ever discussed it ever like not really between us unless you kind of broached it from like you know talking about personal experience but it was just never spoken about and so I thought well if I'm gonna do the series then I think I'm gonna do it um and then it probably took me another probably about a month to like really commit to this one and this idea and it it was meant to be the second one and then I kind of like chickened out of it a bit was like oh no I don't I'm not sure and then went back to it and then I just decided oh screw it I'm gonna do it because I mean I think both of us have this experience in the sport that this whole topic is very taboo and talking about it isn't something that you hear people you hear you 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 just don't hear your teammates talk about it you don't hear um anyone really talk about the the downfalls of having an eating disorder it's all you wrote about it in your article, but there's so much praise for when a rider loses weight and is looking oh, yeah. in and, and horrifying, uh, thing that, that being lean and being light is just glorified. And the whole eating disorder thing is glossed over and, oh, yeah. and, and yeah, it's so common in the sport that if, if you're in the beginning, when you kind of enter the sport, you hear people talking about weight and you hear people talking about losing weight and it's kind of just this thing and you just get used to hearing it. And then as you get farther along in your career and, and for you and I both develop an eating disorder, it becomes way more obvious that it's not just us that are dealing with this. So it's, there's so many people in the sport and, and you talk at the end how, this shouldn't be this shouldn't be a necessity for being fast it's mm. it's hor- horrifying that this is a thing that we think that we have to do we have to lose weight we have to be skinny in order to be fast and 
Um, I mean, I'm just, I am really, um, impressed that you were able to put pen to paper for this because it's such a hard topic to talk about. It's a tough topic. So writing about it couldn't have been easy at all. Um, no, I think it's kind of a tricky one. I mean, I, I already wrote something similar, maybe like six months ago or something mm-hmm. kind of, I sat down and with no intention of ever putting it out anywhere. I was like, I need to just get this down. Um, and I think that kind of, for me, I then had written it and I think people kind of, it's such an, such like a taboo topic. It's something that no one talks about and it's that kind of expands beyond your life in the sport. So I think for me, before I wrote this, I had to sit and tell my parents this, who they didn't, they didn't know it. Um, and like, I had to tell people in my life that I was like, this isn't okay if they read about this for the first time. Um, and so before I'd even started writing it, after like God, years of this being something that I was like ashamed of, was a secret and something that, nobody knew I had to sit down and like tell my mum and that's like that was such a difficult step in it that actually then when I was came to write it I'd already had to tell people that that it mattered a lot more what they thought of me and and how they saw me and how it impacted their lives as well and I think that kind of broke a lot of the kind of difficulty down was that I'd already done what I thought was harder um and then kind of I always say that whenever I write any of this type of thing I only write about it once I'm already at a point where I feel able to be objective about it. Um, like go back a year and I don't think I would have been in a place where I was confident that I wouldn't relapse, that I wouldn't go back into those, that same way and it wouldn't trigger me. But also where I'm not really, I'm no longer like emotional about it really. And I'm not really like angry. I'm not bitter. And so I can write about it in a way that I think is actually helpful rather than just being, you know, either me just like throwing stones at other people or just being like self deprecating or whatever um so kind of it was difficult it was really nerve-wracking to put it out there but I wrote it once I was in a place where I knew that that was an okay thing for me to do for myself and I think that's really important do you think that by writing about it or by more riders who have issues like this maybe riders who are currently racing for example if we are able to talk about it that it'll do anything to help change the future of the sport and the future of the way that women cycling, because men cycling is, they have similar problems, but the, the main difference is that when a female puts her body through this kind of thing and loses a period, there's lasting damage that's done to the body. And for men, there's still damage that's done, but they can bounce back um, Mm. quicker than, than a woman can. And for us, it's, I mean, it puts, your ability to reproduce is damaged and there's a lot more that that goes in and women should have a healthy layer of fat on them although this is professional (laughs) sport so that's when it gets a little bit blah but do you think that by talking about it and by writing about it and by coming forward about it and stuff and 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 more so women who are currently in the sport because they are we're we're washed up you and i mm-hmm. <laughs> oh yeah <laughs> <laughs> that it would make a difference in the future of the sport oh 100% yeah i think kind of i think most people when they write anything that is intended to change something or is to meant to help people or whatever i think you kind of hope that there'll be some like systematic change and environmental change and cultural shift and that that there'll be a prevention of the issue. But actually, I think in reality, 
more so it 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 can also like help people in who are going through it or who are already in the process of it becoming an issue or who are still in a system where that is the outcome for a lot of people i think if it had been if i'd been in the same environment but it had also been safe to talk about and it, it was something that was discussed and something where there was people within the team that were impartial and were unbiased and where you could talk to them in confidence and if teammates discussed it and if other riders discussed it i think even if the kind of culture of weight loss had still been there hanging over the whole thing i think still less people maybe even myself would have not fallen into the same traps because you we were able to talk about it this is it when it's done in secret i think it's firstly easy there's no accountability for it isn't i could do whatever i wanted really in my own time and i felt like oh i have this under control and no one's holding me accountable and no one's calling me out on it and no one's kind of judging it i think until i told one person i feel like it, it had complete control over me and i told one person and suddenly i was already on the way to it not being an issue anymore so i think that's yeah, it kind just of takes that one, like breaking yeah. of it yeah yeah because i think there's obviously it's like you're not you're not like mentally well when you're doing it so i think you kind of create all these things like oh but i'm fine and oh this is actually working and i'm still healthy i'm still okay and like i have i've got this all handled and only when you then break that down by someone telling you that's all wrong then you kind of you can keep going indefinitely in that pattern and something that i kind of have always struggled with is so when somebody says something to you, for example, a, a teammate makes a comment that uh, that maybe you're looking a little too lean or someone kind of approaches you and says, hey, I'm, I'm worried about you. I've noticed some behavior. It's not it comes as kind of a it's aggressive. It seems aggressive. It's I struggle with the idea that someone could approach approach me when I was in the height of my eating disorder in my career and say something to me and that I would have handled it well I think that it a lot of it comes from the person themselves and and being able to kind of come to terms with it and come forward about it and tell that first person that then kind of breaks the the glass and it was easier once I told Tom's for me to take it head on but if someone had approached me and said something to me, I wouldn't have been able to do anything. So, oh yeah, I agree with that. I wouldn't either. I think yeah. I think it has to be that the environment and the culture is one where people feel able to reach out for help, or or rather than one where people talk to you or at you or try and control it. Because I think, I mean, I think I'd have felt really backed into a corner, and I just have lied. Like I think the chances of me having been open and, and not just being defensive um, is probably quite low. I mean, I yeah, I went to someone and that meant that also I felt in control of that interaction and I, I chose the person carefully. It wasn't like I just told anybody. So I think it would, unless it was like coincidentally the exact right person approached you, which I think is highly unlikely, I think normally the person needs to be ready to come to you. And I think that's the environment we need to create. Yeah. So I guess my, the point of my question was like, if somebody is going through this, if you see somebody who's going through this, if you see your, your daughter or you see a friend going through something like this, approaching them about it is maybe not the best call 
creating an environment where they feel safe coming to you is a, a better way to go about it. Oh, yeah. But I think I also had some um, better people, like either, yeah, someone just saying, oh, someone I know, or even parents saying my child. And I think it is a really tricky one, but I think it's, yeah, like you say, it's more letting them letting them know that it's okay to talk to you and like that that's okay and that they're creating like yeah an environment where they feel comfortable but I do think if so for example my mum says oh yeah I thought something was wrong and I, I I probably should have approached you or said something about it and I was like no that would be like the worst thing if you'd come at me with that I think I would just have completely shut off about it um as it was I was dealing with it with other people and that was and I then came to them when it was the time that I was ready for them to know that part of my life. And I think that was a much better outcome for me. Yeah, unfortunately, yeah. for any parents listening, um, telling my parents was the hardest, the hardest people I told it when I was yeah. coming out of it. I wonder if it's, it has something to do with you. You want your parents to, your parents are a safe space. You want your parents to see you a certain way. So telling them, my mom's immediate reaction was, I failed you, I failed you. Yeah, I think it's more like, for me, it was more wanting to protect them in some weird way. Yeah, exactly. It felt like, oh, God, it's going to like break them to know that this was happening all this time and that they didn't do anything about it, I guess, or, or whatever. I think it's more, I don't want them to also, part of the thing with this kind of issue, let's call it, is it feels very intimate to tell people. I mean, even like, I mean, publishing an article, it feels like a very exposing thing to share with people. Um, but also it's one of those things like with anything that's like mental health related or like adjacent that you kind of, you don't want it to change how people treat you in that you don't want them to then obviously be like watching you all the time and be like worrying all the time and be on you about it all the time. And so for me, it was like, I don't want to tell them while I'm still going through it because then I feel like they're going to be like, like a hawk, like hovering over me and, and trying to protect me from it. And yeah, I think it's, I think it's hard for them as well. So, um, it's like a mutual difficulty there. Yeah, definitely. I mean, people who care about someone who's going through this, all they want to do is help. Mm. And when it comes to helping, there's, it's a little bit tricky. So to talk about how to deal with this, if you're from, from more of a professional standpoint, because Molly and I are just yeah, people. We who don't know what you're talking about. Yeah, we don't really <laughs> don't listen to us. We only know from like personal experience, how we dealt with it and how, we would have done things differently, perhaps. Mm-hmm. Um, actually, before I move into talking to Kristen, go, looking back on it, what do you think, is there anything that you can pinpoint that if that in the moment you could have done differently? Or is it kind of like, well, in the moment I still would have wanted to do whatever I could to make my DS proud of right. me, so no. Oh God, that's a hard one. I think um, I'm full of the hard questions today, and oh, I didn't yeah. give you any any indication that I was going to ask that. <laughs> I feel like well, the person I am now, I think I I wouldn't have made the same mistakes that I did, in that I would have stood up for myself and I would have gone, no, this isn't right, and I and I think I would have been kind of strong enough to push back against that pressure. Um, at the time, I can't see myself having made a different choice I think it was it was a kind of a culmination of a long time and a lot of different factors and I think like I wrote in the article at the time that felt like a measured decision it felt like a choice it felt like okay this feels like a solution to this problem that I find myself in and 
in my mindset at the time that felt like okay i know that there are potential repercussions of this and kind of i'd never researched it and i'd never been educated on it but i thought well obviously this isn't good for, for me um but at that moment the kind of what I saw as the benefits of doing it felt like, oh, that outweighs this kind of theoretical issue that might be down the line. Um, and there was always a thing of like, oh, yeah, not having periods and all oh, your reproductive health. And I was like, oh, I don't want children anyway. So who cares? It kind of everything could be. And there was like a could somehow convince myself every kind of negative side effect didn't really matter to me. It wasn't an issue for me. And like, yeah, and the, almost you, I could beat that system and whatever. And I think kind of that's the issue is that kind of the issue for me while I was writing it was that I was looking back and I was seeing myself as the person I was who'd been in that system since I was 15 16 and had been like grown up in that environment and and I could see that actually if I'm the same person I was back then then I would probably have made the same decision and that's kind of the whole problem is that it it wasn't just kind of one irrational moment that I think oh yeah but that was just one person and that was just one moment in time I think yeah I think you can see it happening time and time again for a whole range of different people and that kind of is where it needs to stop I think because at the end of the day it's not about you and your personality and and you as a person it's about the the culture of the sport and the way that the sport views views weight as such an important factor and there's it's an entirely different situation when it's women's cycling yeah and... i think the lack of understanding of because it, it not that it's not only against men but it was all men in power throughout my career yeah. and actually unless they've educated themselves on women's bodies extensively then which they hadn't then also they're making judgments based on kind of a black and white number and like what they believe is ideal and what without any kind of understanding of what that means when it's translated to a woman's body or the repercussions of that and and they would never ask and never discuss it and I think that's not that you necessarily need it to be women I think ideally it is but if it's not then it needs to be people who are educated in the right way about the right things or they shouldn't have an input in it so maybe for the the UCI's DS course for every director sportif has to take a course with the UCI about driving in the pel- in the caravan and stuff how to feed and stuff like that maybe they should also have like a specific two days dedicated to the, the female body yeah <laughs> <laughs> I also just think like my opinion was uh, my whenever it was like a DS my opinion was always that I didn't understand why it was their business really like I never understood why that was because like you say like that that's not their job that's not what they qualified in so every time it was like, it was like daily that he was on me about it. And I thought, what has he got to do with you? Like we have a nutritionist. You really don't really care what she says, That it was this thing of like this, like he was good at his job and that wasn't his job. And I think that was where it always kind of, it angered me at the time and it annoyed me at the time, but I was in a space where that wasn't enough for me to like push back against it. But I do think it, either people have to be, educated in weight and in the anatomy and the human body and in in all that kind of stuff and then they can inform and educate and try and guide people to be the healthiest and best athletes they can be or i think it's none of their business and it shouldn't be theirs to discuss it with the rider like day in day out i think that's a really unhealthy relationship agreed 100 percent. i don't think a director should ever no matter how how much the director knows about a women's a woman's body and 
um, weight in comparison to strength and all that stuff. I don't think a director with the amount of power that they have over a rider should ever, ever, ever have a say in how that rider is eating or how they're feeling themselves or their training or anything like that. Because as riders, we seek out a, a coach that works for us and a coach, sometimes it's within a team, like the team gives you a coach and mm-hmm. hopefully it, hopefully it's a coach that you get along with. I mean, that's like an entirely different discussion is yeah. having all everything be internal. Um, because I actually don't think that everything should be internal at all. Um, we're not a hockey team. We don't get together every day and train together. We're not one. We're, we are at one team, but we're not, we all live separately. And mm. that's like, that's a completely different discussion, but, yeah. <laughs> um, but the, what, what was so, um, scary for me about reading your article was that the, the, the team in question had a nutritionist on staff. So the director should put their hands up in the air and be like, I'm not part of this. And, yeah. and it's, yeah. it, I don't, yeah, there should be something in place that kind of cuts the director out of something like that, I think. And it's a rare case when a director is, knows enough about it and, and maybe is, is a female director that they, can say something and even then you should never say something about about what a woman weighs whether she's a professional cyclist or not (laughs) no yeah the culture that we live in even outside of sport is not one where you can comment on weight and have it be a a passing remark no I think it's yeah it's one of those things where it yeah it's rarely something that just like washes over someone um and I think it was also I don't I I never really we were on typically one year contracts. So my thing was always also like, if you're not happy with how much I weigh, then just drop me from the team after a year. Like it, either my results are good enough or they're not, or I'm riding good enough or I'm not. It, but it was never about that. It was always about how much we weighed. And like, that was, I never understood that either. Cause it's kind of this thing of <laughs> there being so much power within the team outside of the riders. But that also means they have the power to drop you from the team or the power not to put you in races or the power for things that are performance related so I kind of always felt that it was a need to control everything I think and a and there was no kind of safeguarding associated with that of the athlete it was just kind of this kind of powered battle um that kind of the rider rarely wins but it 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 didn't really make sense to me ever that it was as big an issue as it was because it's not the biggest thing for performance and um and so often the athlete I mean, the athlete always cares how much they weigh. That's the thing. Like, n- n- I, there was no riders who were like, oh, I don't really care. I'll have like a 12 pack of donuts for breakfast. Like, oh, I don't care. So it was given that the athlete predominantly is the one who cares the most about how much they weigh because of this like culture we grew up in that, that then it, if you then add to that and you just pile on top of the pressure they already have on themselves, that's already probably twisting their mentality a bit. And it's kind of, I just don't think it's that surprising the outcome. <laughs> No, I agree. It, it, we're all we're already so concerned about how our training and our weight and everything that goes into what makes us fast that bugging us about it or putting more spotlight on it is the worst thing that you can do. Yeah. Cuz yeah. we like care it, already. It's not like yeah. we go we don't go home and sit on the couch and and yeah, eat, eat sugar straight out the bag. We don't do yeah. that. <laughs> 
we're like at home, you know, trying to eat healthy and trying to train as hard as we, or actually training as hard as we can. I always thought the eating was the hardest part. Um, but, but yeah, it's, it's not like we don't care about these things. And I guess we can, in another episode, maybe we can talk about how much power directors have, because I don't think people realize looking in at the sport, how much power a director holds, um, especially on a woman's team when they, they are like solely in charge of running the team. And sometimes you have a director that also owns the team and that adds a whole nother level to it. Where on a lot of, on a lot of men's teams and especially the world tour teams, there's multiple directors. There's not just one director. There's usually, you know, more than three And when it comes to hiring a rider or choosing a rider for racing and stuff like that, there's so many other things that go into it. That's not just the director saying, okay, I think that this guy is good. Yeah. Um, But anyway, so I also have Kristen Keim here to get a professional's opinion on everything we're talking about. So um, Molly, thank you so much for your time and for chatting with me and also for being so open in your articles and, and highlighting what really needs to be said when it comes to women's cycling. Cause there's more than just, um, equal pay. <laughs> <laughs> we welcome. <laughs> so, I just chatted with Molly and I wanted to get another opinion. Molly and I, of course, are ex-professional cyclists who have a lot of experience within the sport of cycling, but we are not professionals when it comes to talking about things like eating disorders and stuff like that, but mostly we're talking about um, eating disorders for this podcast and the pressures of the sport and stuff like that. So, I wanted to also get a professional opinion. So I have invited Kristen Keim, who is one of the best um, s- the best sports psychologists in the business and works with a lot of cyclists in particular. So Kristen, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast. Well, it is actually my privilege. Um, I'm so excited to be on. And uh, wow, you kind of... Uh, <laughs> you touched on my own issues of it makes me very uncomfortable to hear the word best in my name. Um, but I'm starting to own that. Like I may not be the best, but I definitely do feel like when it comes to the topics we're going to talk today and just in general, human performance psychology, I'm really, ex- I've become a better sports psychologist over the last 10 years because I'm, because I get to work with amazing athletes who I get to learn from every day to keep, you know, harnessing my tools to help others. So, um, so thank you for saying that. And, um, it's a, I'm honored to, that you reached out that so that I can hopefully, um, help some others today in our dialogue. Yeah. I wanted the, the main reason that I reached out to you was just because you have a lot of experience with professional cyclists and you have kind of like a cult almost a cult following of the cyclists that come to you and work with you and, and have benefited from, from talking to you about things like this that we're talking about today. Mm -hmm, And so mm -hmm. I thought it would be very useful to kind of talk to you about, um, what we were talking about actually, before we started recording, we were talking about something that I 
have not had a ton of experience talking about. So I wanted to actually just jump right into it and ask you about go, go for it. Um, so the difference between an eating disorder and disordered mm-hmm. eating, because I, because there is a difference and we were talking about this before. Yes. And I kind of want you to, that's, that's a big difference. Yeah. 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 Um, you know, I think that, you know, it's, it's interesting because having been, you know, a lot of people who have maybe followed me or listened to podcasts, they usually always ask the same question, like, Oh, what was your background and how'd you get into cycling? And that whole, the, I was a, professional dancer. So I think when people, you know, think about arenas, of course they think, whoa, like, you know, eating disorders and, you know, whatever. Honestly, I maybe saw a little bit of some people that had some body image issues or a little bit of that when I was in college, but never, I mean, it just, I never, that was never brought up. I had, you know, it just, it just wasn't, I was very lucky to grow up in a very body positive environment, but it wasn't really until I actually got into the sport of cycling, um, with men and women, um, that I started to be like, Whoa, this is, this is like a way more prevalent. Um, and it was the first time that I actually ever really looked at what I was eating. I mean, I would sit there and be taking ballet classes and eating a burger and fries, you know, in between throw, you know, putting on my tutu and I just didn't, you know, you just ate. Um, and you ate a lot because you were hungry and you were fueling your body. Right. And then when I got into cycling, I started seeing like, you know, Oh, if you eat this, this will help you do better. And, you know, you need to be a little bit lighter. And if you're going to be a climber, you got like this. And I never even thought about being a psychologist, but it definitely triggered me in a way where I was like, this is really kind of uncomfortable. And, um, you know, I saw some of my friends starting to do some more drastic things, you know, and to me, they were, you know, red flags. Um, and I saw some people I thought, I, I know to this day, like ended up having eating disorders. So the easiest way is to say that, yes, um, in today's culture, especially 2020, um, there's no way around it. If you were to be like a clinical psychologist and a registered dietitian and look at most professional athletes to some level, they are eating the healthy, balanced meal to just be your normal human who's just going to like walk for 30 minutes to stay healthy. Because really, that's all it takes, right? I think we have a very skewed view on what it takes to stay mentally and physically healthy. And actually, um, the most humbling experience I've had is like the last few years I've actually been suffering or, you know, I actually have this really horrible rare disease where, um, I haven't been able to do anything physical, physically active, but I've been able to actually stay healthy, um, with the limitations that I can do. And it's really actually taught me even more of, this this like really bad unhealthy skewed view that not only professional athletes have but just our whole society of what it means to really be healthy um and stay you know happy actually uh and so to be at the top level i think almost everyone to some degree is going to do at some point probably a little bit of and i hate the word disorder because it's just a very heavy word but i'm just going to use it um disordered eating you know it's not your typical just I'm going to wake up and eat, you know, a Pop-Tart and go to school and then, you know, eat whatever, 
the lunch gives me and then dinner. And, you know, you still could be a healthy kid. Right. It's not that you have to eat everything perfect and everything needs to be hummus and carrots and, you know, whatever. Um, and then you get into professional sport and, you know, we've got power rate ratios, um, you know, power meters are not going away. Um, and everyone is always looking for that like one percent, you know, edge. And oftentimes we focus so much on the body versus even like the mental side, you know, the mental, you know, skills or working with sports psychologists. Um, I think, you know, at the top level, almost, I don't think, feel like athletes need to have a nutritionist in the fact of helping their performance. I often just like having a coach, you don't really need a coach to be motivated. Just you got bigger issues if you're not motivated to train race, right? Probably shouldn't be racing. Um, but you need a coach to kind of tell you, all right, you need a rest day. All right. We need a recovery week. It's kind of the same thing with nutritionists. It's someone to be like, yes, you need to eat more because I will tell you this. I only work with a few like sports nutritionist who were physiologists a lot of times um and have worked in a variety of areas just like I did before you know I was just I'm not you know just a sports psychologist um and they are teaching people that they need to eat more and I would say the 99.9 percent of athletes that I get to go work with um like Kyle Fluffenbach is one you know person that I work with that he always tells me that they not they're not eating enough and that when I get feedback, right, is, oh, my God, they told me how many calories I need to be eating, right? And I'm like, yeah, because most athletes are under eating because, again, we have this skewed view. And, you know, I mean, I, a lot of this happened in the 80s culture, right? Like, you got workout, you got the Jane Fonda, we start to see these um, you know, models on magazines. So all this stuff is still in our culture. And now it's even worse. Because now you got Instagram, right? And so, you know, it can still perpetuate. And I would say it, there's still a lot of disordered eating. We have a lot of work to do. This is not going to go away tomorrow. Um, and we can get into, like, some of the ideas that I have. Um, and so disordered eating would look like someone who, you know, is just kind of really watching their eating to a point that kind of is a little bit of, OCD, like, you know, the, it's just almost too uh, perfectionistic and and then they kind of have a little bit of fear and and food is just a little too much of a focus. Right. Like, mm -hmm. so that kind of leads to something that might be unhealthy. But they, that doesn't mean they actually have a clinical eating disorder. Um, a clinical eating disorder would need to be diagnosed by a psychologist um, and that would be someone who is doing things that are more anorexic. So they're starting to really, you know, not eat. Mm -hmm. Um, and some of the signs are they talk about food a lot, but they're restricting intake. Um, they hoard, they hide food, they're secretive, um, there's some depression there. There's some anxiety symptoms, um, or bulimia. Um, you know, they're eating, you know, the, to the teammates to look like they're eating a lot. And then they're secretly, you know, causing themselves to, um, throw up. 
And then what we're seeing a lot more of, and especially in men, a lot of, you know, male cyclists that I've worked with um, have, you know, kind of come up and had this eating um, is, you know, doing the, uh, doing like the kind of, you know, other um, things that uh, would be um, unhealthy. And I think, you know, oh my God, I can't even let the words I even come to my brain today. <laughs> um, my God. Kristen, this is like you just like, uh, I can't even think of the word. Um, shoot. Well, it'll come to me eventually and, and I'll just say it sporadically. Cool. Uh, but anyway, so, so there, there's a clinical, the eating disorders that we have. Right. Um, and, and so it's hard, it's a fine line. Um, and, and so, you know, I think that's just something, you know, to be aware of is that, you know, to be at the top level, there's going to be, everyone's going to kind of have their own unique, weird things. And some of it might even just be, you know, I need to eat this because I think these pancakes are going to make me do whatever wants up this climb. All right, that's fine. Is a little anal? Is it like you carry your own waffle maker with you and it's a little obsessive? That's fine. You know, I don't even know if that's really disordered. But it would be that, you know, where it just became stressful, right? Right. We're like, you know, making their meals and, you know, doing all this stuff just becomes like very stressful and um, kind of a new, you know, just not re realistic, right? Um, it just wasn't even making eating fun anymore because, you know, few body or our bodies are these beautiful vessels and we want to fuel them with these amazing nutrients. And I think that once we kind of get away from that lens, um, it's a slippery slope and it is a very slippery slope. So if you go into sport already with some underlying anxiety or depression, um, you know, being a professional athlete, could be extremely triggering. And then on the other side, if you're already someone who has an eating disorder and you're on a team and say you're working on it with like a psychologist and you got, you know, a psychiatrist, but then you are on a professional running your cycling team with someone who is clearly has an eating disorder, but not working on it, you know, that can be even very triggering. So does that kind of help a little bit? Yeah, for sure. Um, a bunch of questions popped in my head actually. And a couple, do you think that, um, someone who makes it to the top level of professional cycling, like, um, a woman who's on, on a UCI team or a world tour team and, and has already made it that far. Do you think that for the most part, I mean, I hate to like generalize because everyone is so different, but I feel like someone who makes it that far in a sport as hard as cycling probably already has tendencies to to obsess over something like weight yes. or yes cuz you have to be obsessed with training already and and all of the little details that go into being good at a sport like cycling so then mm -hmm. when you introduce weight and there's so much there's already so much underlying culture for uh, being lean and being light and not even when it's just our bodies. It, it's also, um, when it comes to the bike, like we're constantly mm -hmm. trying to make our bikes light and stuff like mm -hmm. that. So when you introduce someone who's already got, got to those 
the top of the sport of cycling and has already got a couple screws loose. Yes. Do you think that there's more tendency to remember my language, girl? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Yes. And so side, side, side note, um, binge eating was gosh, I'm having like, you know, here I am on a podcast talking about eating disorders and I can't even think of the number one. That's like, that I focus on, you know, we're all like, Hey, we all have our, our days. Um, binge. Uh, yeah. So that is a very big, um, prevalent one now that we're seeing in our society is, and I definitely see that in a lot of guys too, um, is yeah. And then you just like, and then it's hard to mm -hmm, stop it. Yeah. mm -hmm, mm -hmm, (laughs) Yep. Yep. And, um, you know, that's, that's the one I see a lot more of nowadays, um, than, you know, even just your typical, the ones that we talk about anorexia or bulimia is the BNG eating. Um, and like you said at the cheat day. So, yeah. So, yes. Um, you know, going back to what we were just talking about there is, you know, I think sometimes it's good to just, you know, what causes them? Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, and it's a, it's a variety of things, right? So like, if you're going to be clinically having an eating disorder, you know, one of them is just genetics. I mean, I, you know, any mental health, anyone who has like their mom or dad has a mental health problem. I mean, it's going to be very challenging for that child to not have something, but it's never the same. So your mom might have depression you might have an eating disorder or, but you know, you don't have an eating disorder without, it's not like you just one day become a pro athlete and have an eating disorder, right? Like that's just not how it works. There's always, it has to be an anxiety or depression underlying it. And you don't have anxiety without depression. It's all on the spectrum. And you're just like this little, you know, imagine a bead on a string, right? And it's just like going from side to side. Sometimes you might like, you know, this might trigger that. And then, you know, comparison usually triggers more of a depression, but then, you know, uh, winning a race will trigger more anxiety, right? right? But then not doing well, will go back down to that depression, Mm -hmm. right? So think of it as arousal, you know, and so, you know, whether you're low underneath the water, right? Like sinking or you're swimming through your life, and you just can't, you know, you're choking, right? It's kind of how I always look at it. And that's a good way to kind of picture it. Um, and so that, so that's, you know, genetics is going to be, a, you know, I mean, it's just, that's the number one. Um, and then also it's going to be obviously supported or triggered by, you know, your environment. Um, yeah. I mean, you know, you may not have as bad of a, of, of, dep- of a depression, but, you know, I truly don't believe that you, anyone who strives to be a professional athlete, um, you know, for me, I think you have to always have some underlying mood kind of disorder because it, you just aren't going to be driven. Do you see what I'm saying? It's just, you're, to be the best, you have to be perfectionistic. You don't become CEO of Apple or whatever, right? Like without, um, you don't become president or someone without some mental whatever, whether it's really bad personality disorder or just, you know, severe, like just drivenness. But I promise you behind any president or anyone that does that, even if we don't know about it, 
They probably have had panic attacks. They're probably, you know, have been on medication for something at some point in their life, probably had severe depression. Um, and so I think that's just, you know, at the top level, I don't think there's anyone who's the best, who's won a grand tour, who hasn't had depression or anxiety. That doesn't mean they have to be medicated, right? It doesn't mean they have it all the time. It could just be experiential. It could just be that they had a lot more issues while they were an athlete, and then when they retired, they were the happiest human being ever, right? Do you think you talk about um, environment, and that kind of touches a little bit on what Molly and I talked about and what Molly talked about in her article about um, – a director who involves himself in their athletes, their riders weight or management of their weight when really Mm -hmm. it should be a nutritionist and a coach who deal with it. And this is Mm -hmm. something that we see a lot more in women's cycling than men's cycling, mostly because men's cycling have more resources than women's cycling. And Mm -hmm. sometimes Mm -hmm. a lot of the times women's teams only have a director. And the case that Molly was talking about was different because the team had a nutritionist um, and a coach that were working closely with the directors. So that's a very different kind of situation, but still um, is there, do you have any thoughts on, on directors or people in power having, making comments about a rider's weight? Um, leave that team, fire that coach, (laughs) fire that director and fire that nutritionist. Yeah. Yeah. That's kind of what I said as well. (laughs) I mean, that's it. There should never be, you know, and this is what I try to teach my 16 year old athletes. And I'm still working with 30 year old, you know, world cup Olympians on you don't, you're not a number. You're not a power not weight, not to power to weight number. You're not a on the scale number. You're not a watts number. I, you know, I, I mean, if we could just get rid of tr- uh, power meters, I'd be the happiest sports psychologist ever. I mean, you know, it's like I almost think sometimes numbers always hold us back. What rather than become performance enhancers? Mm-hmm. Does that make? any sense yeah for sure I mean I personally remember rides that I would go on later and earlier in my career my power meter was almost always broken and I didn't care my coach hated it but I was I just never wanted to deal with the numbers so I would just sometimes I just take the battery out and just ride based Mm -hmm. on feel and I always Mm -hmm. was better (laughs) like in my earlier mm-hmm. career, I was always stronger and I was always happier. And and then as I got deeper into my career and I switched coaches and and the I I started getting so attached to my power meter that I remember the last couple years of my of racing. If I would go out on a ride and my power meter was dead, I was like, I I can't ride. I can't ride until it's fixed. Can't ride until it's working. Oh gosh, yes. Yeah. You know, it's so funny. I I mean, I'm dating myself, but like when power meters first came out, I mean, I never raced with the power meter. I mean, I don't I think Tina Pick Mountain might have been the only woman in the Peloton to have one at the time when I was when I was racing. Um and uh and probably Kristen Armstrong. Um and so Definitely it Kristen, was just yeah. 
but no, maybe not even on the team that she was on when I was still racing. That's how this is like early 2000. So, but the guys did. And I used to train with some guys that were on health net and, um, I went to go pick, you know, I went to go road over and this is in Athens, Georgia. And we were going to go on this big ride. And one of them was like, well, I can't ride today or I'm not going to join y'all today. Um, I'm just going to, you know, or whatever. And I, and I was like, why? He's like, well, my pit power is broken. And I just looked at him and I was like, is that has anything to do with how your bike functions? I mean, it didn't. I was just like, whoa, red flag there. Right. Like, so you're not going to train just because like you don't have numbers. Why would this, why would this training day be any not worthy or worthy? Right. And so when I saw that, then I was like, well, this is not going to look good. And now I mean like, wow, how many years later, 20 years later, you know? And it's like, uh, yeah, it's just toxic. It's just really bad. Um, and I really do. I think, you know, how I look at it is, you can't have, you know, what happens with is whether it's the weight or the power meter, your self esteem gets attached to it. Yeah, your right? self worth so, gets mm-hmm, gets attached yes. to a number. All that, whether it's your weight, and it's a slippery slope, and they start to trigger each other. Because I definitely have, you know, women that I've worked with in the past who I think had a healthier lens on it where you know they did it a healthy way they hated like how they had like they you know it wasn't fun for them to have to eat like the chicken and rice or whatever to get to the weight that they knew they needed to be at and I never wanted to hear that number now they might say it but I always supported them in a way of like making sure that they felt strong, that they felt like they were still sleeping well, like everything was going great, but they were going to get to that number. And I couldn't ever shake that. Like they knew they, they were so attached that like they were not going to be able to do X, Y, Z if they weren't there, which I knew was BS, (laughs) but you know, I can't, I don't have magic fairy dust. So all I could do is just be like, all right, I'm not changing that for you, but like, I'm going to support you and what, what, and it wasn't ever something their coach told them. It wasn't ever something that the person they were working with, because I know the person they were working with was not helping them to get to that way. It was more about, all right, if you feel like you need to do this, this is the healthiest way we're going to do it. And we're going to make sure you're still getting lots of calories, but it was more about the system. So the good thing about working like a sports physiologist, who's going to look at it as as performance versus like a registered dietitian, they're actually going to be the ones telling you to eat more and working with your body to work on the right, turning on the right fat burning systems. Right. So that's why we've introduced, you know, the fasting and, you know, all, but again, am I going to tell, have an athlete try the fasting who has an, a, a history of an eating disorder or that I have worries with? No. And I'd be the first one to call up their nutritionist or whoever they're working with and be like, eh, eh, this is not happening. No. Right. Like, mm-mm. um, and, and, you know, and that's a still a hard call, you know, because we're still there's still a lot we don't know about fasting. And, you know, um, we know it works with like cancer patients, you know, but I mean, it's another thing. It's like, you know, are, are, is that really going to be he- healthy for an athlete? When to do it? Should we do it in the middle of a season? So, I mean, you know, we still have a lot to learn about the body um, and we still have a lot to learn about eating disorders. And, you know, really, they're 
you know, a lot of people don't understand. And I just talk about them straight up, like eating disorder. Like, you know, even with my younger athletes that have one, it's not a scary word. It's like suicide. We're so afraid to talk about it. We're so afraid to talk about suicide. We're, you know, talking about eating disorder is not going to trigger someone to have an eating disorder. It's the opposite. You, you guys talking about it, Molly talking about it, Lauren talking about it, you know, people sharing their experience and, um, which is so courageous and vulnerable and not everyone can do that. And that's okay. If you are, if you can't share your story and never share your story, that's okay. But for the people that do, it's also, it's usually very cathartic and healing and helpful in their journey. Um, and so, you know, you know, talking about, it's not going to create someone to do it, if anything, it's going to help them feel like they can reach out and get support for one. Yeah. So that kind of brings me to, I mean, there's two things I want to kind of talk about before we wrap it up. Um, but the, one of the main things was like, how do we shift the cultural mindset in cycling to not, to not promote having an eating disorder? So you said earlier, you had some ideas about how we can how we can handle the situation. So I'm really curious what your, what your ideas are. Um, so, so how to go forward yeah. with this yeah. and change the culture. I think it's that, I think it's more of this open dialogue um, about, you know, having the right people um, in the culture of sport or running an endurance sport, uh, you know, obviously there's going to be stuff in gymnastics and, you know, um, figure skating. I mean, you know, it is not just cycling. I mean, this is, this is, this stuff is going on in all kinds of sports and human performance and stuff. And like I said, you know, dance, um, you know, all these different things, anything where the body image is a part of the sport or the you know it's like for figure skating um you know yeah it's like looking a certain way gymnastics looking a certain way and now cycling got that way where you know you, you know i have a lot of athletes who are good climbers and they're you know just naturally thin or they're you know in high school so yeah they're still thin they haven't you know, the hormones haven't changed. They haven't gone to college and maybe gave the, you know, freshman 15 or, you know, whatever happens, our body changes as we grow up. And, um, you know, I think it's, you know, important to just support that you can be a great climber and you don't have to be super thin. Um, because if you're eating healthy and you're eating to fuel your body and you're feeling good and happy and your self-esteem is, you know, good. And you have a great village around you that supports, you know, what you're doing and your strength training and, you know, you're mixing it up. You're, you know, if you're a road cyclist, you're still enjoying the bike and you're enjoying training. Um, and you're training in a way that's healthy. You have a good coach that doesn't overtrain you, that you're, you know, you're taking recovery days and recovery weeks and, um, you know, taking a month off every season, not just, you know, I mean, I get, I get athletes sometimes who are, you know, U23s and they start when they're juniors and we start working together and I'm like, all right, like, you know, it's a transition season. And they're like, yeah, my coach gave me a week off. And I'm like, what? Like, 
you need to take a month off. And they're like, I've never taken more than one week off. And I'm just like, my mind blows. I'm like, well, no wonder we're working together. Right. Like (laughs) what? Like, I'm like, that's almost on that line of abuse. I'm like, Oh my God. Like that's overtraining syndrome right there. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, and overtraining syndrome and eat and eating disorders. Woo! Are they going to be like, right. Like a lot aligned, um, too. So, um, cause you could be eating great and then, you know, just like you said, turning off the, you know, the coach says to do three hours, turning it off and then doing four hours. Yeah. And then every day you're doing more than what your coach sees. Right. But then, you know, it's hard to see you're not training. Your coach doesn't know what you're thinking and always doing on the bike. Mm-hmm. Right. And so that, you know, I think that's something is that coaches need to be trained um you know I'm I mean I'm I'm 10 years trained in a lot of stuff um I'm sorry like the coaches I mean hopefully they have like you know a certificate or something from their federations whether it's USAC or the Canadian Federation or whatever country they're in but you know I you know we do we have a survey of that I mean there's nothing that is monitoring coaches or directors or even like, you know, these nutritionists or whoever. Um, there's a lot of people, you know, who call themselves sports nutritionists who don't even have a degree in your, your basic human physiology. Um, and, you know, call themselves coaches who, you know, don't really understand that like how they train is not how, a, uh, you know, they're a man who trained at the tour level, but they're working with a, a woman. Um, they can't train the same. They can't do the same hours. It's not because women are not, not as good. We're just different. Our bodies are different. That's like <laughs> our bodies are different. Numbers. And actually, I think more men need to train like women because I think everyone ever trains. Yeah, just in a story across the board. I <laughs> one of the main questions I get on like Instagram DMs or Twitter DMs from from people are asking about oh like how do you find the right coach and it's it i i love this question because i love to answer it because i had so many different coaches in my i had four different coaches in you my you did i don't remember five, that. yeah in my like <laughs> 6 year career or whatever and and i had the extremes i had the coach that i was so mm-hmm. scared of that i wouldn't i would never tell him if i felt bad or if there yep. was something going on, because I was so scared of him that I just Which did everything. Is the power dynamic exactly. often between? <laughs> and to men, so male coaches always need to understand that that they are going to have a power dynamic, even if they're the nicest person. It's it's actually hilarious because I I only had one female coach. Um, and I was also really scared of her. And then the only coach that I had, oh, totally. yeah, yeah. Like terrified of her. Um, so I would, yeah. I would never tell her if I felt bad or anything. And on the opposite end of the spectrum, I had a coach in my last two years of racing that had became one of my closest friends and I would call him crying mm-hmm. all the time. And, and mm-hmm. I, he knew everything that was going on in my life. And, mm-hmm. and I was so much, I was so much fitter because yeah, well, that's that's it. Exactly. And I mean, that's a that's a challenge too. Is the coaching? I mean, I don't have that many clients. I mean, you know, I know I can't take on so many because, like, I'm invested in these human beings. You know, I don't care about you winning races. I care about you being a happy human. 
Right. And, yeah. You know, you know, my happy, ra- that's where happy racers go faster comes from. It's like, if you're not a happy, healthy human, you're not going to be a happy, healthy athlete and a happy, healthy athlete goes faster. I don't care who you are, because again, even if you're not winning, it doesn't matter. As long as you showed up and you were as prepared as possible and you did your best, you might be disappointed, right? But you're still going to be like proud of your effort, which is the most important thing. And it's, it's a process, right? If you show up to a race Mm -hmm. and you don't do as well as you wanted to, and and you're discouraged and you're upset. I mean, it's just one step in the process of getting to where you want to be, because maybe in that race you didn't win or you didn't place where you wanted to place, but maybe you did five things perfectly that you hadn't done well before. Yeah. You just sat in the Peloton with a little less stress. Exactly. That's a massive win to me. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah. So, yeah. I mean, and so just, yeah, I mean, I think that that's a big thing is just, you know, a lot of coaches just take on too many athletes and, um, and they get burned out. And I, I mean, I, I think that's just something that, all coaches need to sit with is how many athletes can I, and you know, I know there's all these like, you know, I'm going to coach you and, you know, only have this much, you know, there's different stages and, you know, and all that. And I get it. But, um, you know, for me, that's, it's just hard because to be a good coach, you really, you know, you don't have to be besties with the person, but you need to be invested and you need to know what's going on in their life. Um, and I think it just got to this very, cookie cutter because when I had a coach we didn't have all the training peaks and all that um I, I was definitely like I mean that person is still someone to this day that like I'm, I'm really you know not that I'm say super super close to but I still very I still feel close to does that makes any sense well there needs to be because, a line you know, of we were friends yeah 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 and, 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 and it was more of like colleagues mm-hmm. versus like, you know, this, um, like this power, like, the, like this person is God. I mean, you know, no coaches, God. Yeah. And, and, you know, and this is it too. Coaches get a lot of credit, not, not just taking any discredit from coaches, but I think a lot of athletes blame themselves when really they should be like, well, maybe your coach effed up, not you. Yeah. True. I, my last question that I kind of want to wrap, wrap up on, um, is something, a discussion that Molly and I were having when we were chatting about how to approach somebody that you, that you observe, like someone who's close to you, say your child or one of your close friends or a teammate you're very close with, or someone who you think has, has some disordered eating tendencies or looks like they're headed down uh, a bad road and how to kind of deal with that. Because Molly and I both, we, when we were talking about it, we both said that if someone had approached us when we were in the thick of our, our bad times, (laughs) if, if Mm -hmm. my, if, if Tom's had said something to me without me, being prepared for it or me talking to him first, I would have reacted very Mm -hmm. badly to it. Um, Mm -hmm. and, and like if my coach had said something to me about, about my obsession with food and everything like that, I wouldn't, I wouldn't have been able to take it as, as them being concerned. It would have been more of an, I would have just felt attacked. 
So mm-hmm, mm-hmm. a question that I, another question I get a lot from, from people who are, you know, in collegiate racing or, um, or someone who's, who's coaching a junior or something like that is how to, how to deal with someone who has, who's headed down like a road that would lead to disordered eating or an eating disorder. Yeah, no, I mean, um, you know, I think it's the same thing with suicide. You, you don't ignore it. You don't say something. Um, so I'll stay, I'll start with young ones. If it's someone who is in high school or under 18 and they have parents, um, and you're like, say a high school coach or a junior coach. Um, and you, you know, if you notice it, I can't imagine the parents don't notice it. You know what I'm saying? So I would definitely go to the parents first, but it needs to be brought up and it would be something probably the parents need to bring up with the child. Um, if that makes any sense, right? Like, it's, it, you know, it takes a village, but uh, I would start there, um, but it definitely needs to be brought up and it might be scary. And maybe, you know, maybe some parents might be in denial, but all you can do is plant seeds and all you can do is just, be educated about the signs. Like I just, like, that's what I was talking about. Just everyone needs to be educated. Everyone needs to just say like, that's the elephant in the room. There's eating disorders and disordered body image in professional sport. Um, especially in, you know, and it's in mountain biking, it's in road. It's not like, you know, again, you're in Lycra. It's, you know, we've got these, like, if you're, you know, you're skinnier, people are going to go up a hill faster and, you know, we just got all these distorted, irrational beliefs. Um, and I think it's just planting seeds. And the same if you have a teammate. You know, I, they may not, in in hindsight, I hope one day they thank you, right? Yeah. Um, and that's what I was going to say is, you know, would you today be able to thank your coach or Tom's if they had brought that up? Oh. Yeah, probably. I think if looking, looking back on it, if Tom's had said something to me, Tom specifically, I think if, Mm -hmm. if a teammate had said something to me, I probably wouldn't have even now, I don't think I would be grateful, but it depends Mm -hmm. who it is. Right. If Tom's was to come to me and say the way it was executed. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. It would depend how it was said and, and who said it. But I think the more time you spend away from the sport, the more grateful I am for the people who were who were honest with me, if that makes sense. Well, and those are the people that care for you. Yeah. So the people, you know, that's the thing. And in healthy relationships, and you can't worry about how you, I can't worry about how you're going to react, right? Like just I have to do this all the time. I have to help clients realize they have an eating disorder or that things are you know, okay, like I can tell that you're being a little bit more triggered and hopefully we get the rapport where they start to open up and say, you know, Hey, like, you know, I'm really like, these are my thoughts. And, you know, it's like, Whoa, that's, that, that's definitely, you know, you know, kind of dancing around the binge eating, you know, and a good psychologist is, you know, going, it's not about the, it's not about a label or the diagnosis. It's about the symptoms and helping the person with the symptoms, um, and so as long as in the sport of cycling, especially women's cycling and men's and professional, you know, mountain bike, row, cross, BMX, whatever it is, um, downhill, <laughs> you know, um, it's 
it, it it's about us all just being aware and being educated, but also, you know, you, you, if you care about someone, you, it's not about keeping their friendship. It's about keeping, saving their life. Right. And so if you see a friend, you know, that, you know, and a lot of times people who have had, you know, I actually have a lot of athletes that come to me who've worked on their eating disorder and are starting to get triggered because a teammate clearly has it. You know, and, you know, they'll they'll even send me photos because maybe I don't actually know this athlete. And, you know, they're like, yeah, and I'm really worried. And how do I go about it? And, you know, we talk about like, OK, like, how do you talk to them about this? Um, and, you know, honestly, I think it's just speaking up and saying, hey, I'm concerned. Like, you know, you've you 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 know, is there anything that you need to talk to me about? Like you've been a little bit more anxious. So wait, so most people who are having some trap challenges are going to be showing some signs of anxiety or depression. And so you can kind of talk about that more about like the other symptoms versus just the body image. Does that make sense? Yeah. Um, but if they are, you know, hoarding or you heard them throw up again, it's just about like, Hey, like I know something's going on and I'm here to talk to you and, you know, um, if you need me to get help, um, but if it's something where you're really scared for their life, uh, then, you know, then reach out to a family member, reach out to their significant other. Um, because again, if you're noticing it, you, it I'm, other people are noticing it. It's just people are too afraid to step up and it's about saving lives. And like I said, like, you know, it's just, it, if they're already showing some symptoms and, you know, they've got, an environment that's just going to be, you know, is toxic to, to only breed and, and foster probably down the road of it becoming not just ordered, you know, just, you know, disordered eating, but more of an eating disorder, then, you know, you're going to maybe possibly save a life by speaking up and maybe, maybe you lose a friendship. But honestly, you know, at the end of the day, that's something that they have to work on because, I would hope they got to a point where they realized that that person was trying to save their life. Um, but maybe they don't. I mean, that's okay. At least, you know, you planted seeds and if you really truly cared about that person, hopefully they got help eventually and got better. Yeah. True. Okay, cool. Yeah, that's good. That's, um, that's really good advice. So, I mean, and one last thing that I would like to say is yeah. I do see a trend of hope. I do see a lot more athletes showing that they eat, you know, that they eat, I don't want to say a lot, but like they eat healthy mm-hmm. and, and a lot more p- athletes are looking stronger. Yeah. And, and, um, there's- and, and, and we're showing more about being strong versus being thin. Does that make sense? For sure. There's more of a cultural shift right now too in, in strength. And I see so much on social media and stuff about, um, about being healthy and being body positive. And it's, it's giving me body positive. Yeah. It's giving me hope for if I have a daughter someday, and the world that she'll and, and, and who do they want to look up to? So when they yeah. say like, I want to look like, so I have athletes that do that. They're, they're like, Hey, I want to look like that athlete. And I'm like, but that to look like that athlete, they have a lot of muscle. They're really strong. 
you know, like, so you got to eat, got to fuel your body. Yeah. Right. Um, and so just, ha- and again, just having that dialogue, connecting the dots, right. Um, that like, as long as you're happy and you're training healthy and you're eating to fool your body efficiently, then your body is going to go where it needs to be for optimal performance. What, when we start to force things. Yeah. That's when everything goes downhill. Thank you. Yes. (laughs) Perfect. (laughs) Well, thank you so much for chatting with me. I feel like we kind of barely scratched the surface, but, um, maybe we can talk again in a future episode on, um, retirement. Cause I feel like you would have a lot of good points about, about retiring. <laughs> oh, and you know about work. You know, I don't like our, that word retired. Yeah. It's transition yeah. out of sport. Right, right. Yes. And that was my dissertation. Like half my dissertation was on that. So oh, that well, is my we'll, happy place. We'll definitely yes. bring you back. Because <laughs> I have my own challenges with that too. <laughs> Thank you so much for listening to this episode. It's a little bit different. I don't have Lauren with me today. We're not talking about the news. This episode, I wanted to just really focus on eating disorders. And I know Lauren and I have our own stories and we could tell our own stories, but I wanted to kind of highlight the talk with Kristen Keim a little bit because she is a professional. And when it comes to us kind of spouting stuff, I mean... Molly and I were talking when we were talking about how we would have hated for someone to approach us about the signs that they saw when we were dealing with it. And then Kristen, when I talked to her, she turned around and said, no, you, you should approach somebody. If you care about somebody, you should approach them. And it may ruin the friendship and it may create some awkward feels, but the most important thing is their health and getting them back to confidence and understanding that they're hurting their bodies in the long run. So there were some things that were cleared up, which is really nice. And also she's just a joy to talk to. So Molly and Kristen, thank you so much again. And also thank you so much to you all for listening to my podcast. It really means so much to me. And I love getting the tweets from people saying that they are still listening to the gear ratio episode. And also people who are enjoying what Lauren and I have to talk about. That's just, it warms my heart and it is very, very, um, nice that people care what we have to say. Um, if you're not already a Velo Club subscriber, I would highly recommend that you look into the Velo Club thing. We have a ton of stuff that is for Velo Club members only. There's deals and stuff on our store, but more than that, there's a lot of communication with the people inside cycling tips on our slack and i'm constantly checking the slack to see what people are talking about the news and cycling random stuff and then also interacting with people it's really really fun to hear what people have to say um in the slack channel and then see the discussions that come up from that so slack the velo club has really been kind of a game changer in this quarantine because it feels like you're connected to so many people all over the world but it's not like twitter or instagram where you are you are connected but it's a little bit um tailored it's more like you're connected to a bunch of people all over the world who have similar views but are very different people and 
and we all talk about bikes. <laughs> so, so it's really great. So anyway, now I'm just rambling. So thank you so much for listening and we'll be back in two weeks. Bye.